Part I. Sunday, January 26, 2020, Zurich, Switzerland. This trip to Zurich is a new not quite normal version of something Brian and I love. Traveling. Road trip, train ride, ferry ride, airplane anywhere. We like all travel and most shopping, and this trip to Zurich has all the accoutrements of our other trips and is also nothing like anything we've ever done. As we usually do, we take a car service to the airport so we can be fancy and also avoid the park and schlep, and even before Brian had Alzheimer's, our combined lack of direction adds 20 minutes to all transportation transitions. We have a restaurant meal before our 6pm departure. I buy a stick of lipstick and a small tube of hand cream, Brian buys some candy. We share gum. We share a bottle of water. On the plane, we enjoy the settling in, the attention of the flight attendants, who already like us because Brian is mindful about his size and doesn't swing his arm into someone else's drink, and he expresses appreciation to every single Swiss Air representative. We seem like people who will not be screaming for more booze or more peanuts at midnight. No one loves business class more than people who always fly coach. We are smiling from the moment we board. I range up using Eskless pods, we are gushingly polite to the attendants. It's obvious that we like each other and are happy to be traveling together. As soon as we get our beverages, in glasses, we toast my sister and brother-in-law, who are paying for our business class trip to Zurich. Dignitas office is in Zurich, and that's where we're headed. Dignitas is a Swiss non-profit organization offering accompanied suicide. For the last 22 years, Dignitas has been the only place to go if you are an American citizen who wants to die, and if you are not certifiably terminally ill with no more than six months to live. This is the current standard in the United States, even in the nine right-to-die states plus the District of Columbia, about which many older or chronically ill Americans harbor end-of-life fantasies, and which I researched, at Brian's direction. Until we discovered that the only place in the world for painless, peaceful, and legal suicide is Dignitas, in the suburbs of Zurich. Dash my sister had cried with me since the second appointment with a neurologist, when it took the doctor less than an hour to give Brian a mental status exam, and inform us that Brian almost certainly had Alzheimer's, and had probably had it for several years, judging by his high IQ. His struggles with balance and proprioception, and his poor performance on the exam. It took Brian less than a week to decide that the long goodbye of Alzheimer's was not for him, and less than a week for me to find Dignitas, at the end of several long Google paths. From summer to winter, my sister Ellen, who loves me and loved Brian, did her best not to make suggestions, not to offer a fondies, not to say that maybe Brian's Alzheimer's wouldn't be too bad or would progress very slowly, not to cry when I wasn't crying. And not to pour out her own grief for the loss of one of her favorite people and a compatible foursome. When they met for the first time, 14 years ago, Brian went into Ellen's kitchen with his winning ways and said, I really love your sister. My sister didn't turn around. She said, hurt her and I will kill you. Ellen called me early one morning in December, when we were pretty sure that we'd clear the hurdles for Dignitas, and said, just tell me what you need. I said, reluctantly, 20,000, and my big sister said, here's a check for 30. We ended up spending every penny of it, between a couple of last big fishing trips for Brian, his not working, my not working, our eating out all the time, sometimes lunch and dinner, at the nicest restaurants in New Haven. We spent it on what was to be our last joint birthday celebration, and on four nights in the five-star hotel in Zurich and the car services and the tours of Zurich and my friend flying to and from Zurich, to keep me company on the flight home, on whatever makes bad months bearable. Plus the cost of Dignitas itself, around $10,000 all in. Dash in a Swiss Air pods, Brian and I toast each other, and we say, here's to you, a little hesitantly, instead of what we usually say, Santani, may we have a hundred years of very Italian toast. 
There is no Santani for us, we won't make it to our 13th wedding anniversary. We lean closer to each other and then we pull back, each of us fussing with our shoes and carry-ons. Each of us opening our little gift bags from the airline and pulling out the socks, yes, and the eye masks, never, and the tiny toothpastes and tiny toothbrushes, which we persist in believing will delight the grandchildren, which they never do. It is all nearly normal, like so much that we've done this last few years, like the flight itself, and everything that precedes it the trip to the airport, that saw, a petty but deep pleasure at having saw pre-check, noting the much longer shoes off lines to the left of us. The pretty good meal at JFK. It all seems normal, except that I still remember how different it was to be together, to be with Brian, three years ago, when I didn't hold my breath from the time he went off to the newsstand until he came back, from the outside, or some kind of inside, the one where I too have no memory, of how we used to live our actual life, it is nearly normal. For the trip to JFK, we didn't use Arnold, the guy who always drives a car to the airport, and returns it to our driveway. Arnold's been driving us, and our kids and grandkids, for six years, and he has shared with us all about his love of motorcycles, his sobriety, and his wife's health issues, to balance, I think, all the information he has about us, whether he's wanted it or not. I could not bear to lie to Arnold about where we are going, and I cannot bear to tell him the truth, and I could not come up with a half-truth, the favorite technique of serious liars, about why we are going to Zurich in late January. For the skiing. For the ice fishing. For the chagall windows in Frommanster Church. I was afraid, that Arnold would watch us sympathetically in the rearview mirror, and I could not bear it, for Brian's pride in my general soft-boiledness, and just as I could not bear any harshness at all, I didn't think I could take kindness either. I wanted absolutely nothing, a blanket of indifference, and that was exactly what we got from the driver of our local limo service. He spoke once in the two and a half hour drive. Perfect. At JFK, we stood mid-terminal four and agreed on the restaurant, nicer than Shake Shack, which I love, and Brian does not, but not as nice as the Palm Steakhouse, which seems insanely high-priced, but as I'm writing this, I remember that we did go to the Palm, after all, because, obviously, Dash Brian ordered everything he wanted and, it seemed to me, everything that anyone can imagine ordering at the Palm Steakhouse at JFK, except vodka on the rocks, which he had been mentioning wanting from time to time for the last year or so. At the Palm, Brian ordered onion rings and a rare ribeye, with a side of hash browns, and a Caesar salad and garlic toast, and he would have ordered a shrimp cocktail, except that I whispered, like the circa 1953 stage Jewish wife I seemed to have become. Missing only my home perm and recractrumed apron. Really? Shrimp in a steak place, in an airport? Brian shrugged, to say. I'm not that excited about airport shrimp anyway and, also, what's the worst that could happen? I could have a bite, and it's meh, and then I wouldn't eat it. Waste of money, so what? I could die from bat shrimp, and wouldn't that save us all a lot of trouble? Or I could get food poisoning and have to miss the flight. At this, he folded the menu and looked at me the way he often did now, with resigned understanding, fatigue, a little worn humor. I teared up all through dinner, with Brian occasionally patting my hand. I kept crying because I loved him and his appetites and all the sensuality and good humor and heat-seeking that went with them. Sorry I missed your call. For a little while, in 2007, Brian and I were bi-coastal. I worked in LA on a short-lived TV show. He flew in from Hartford, right after work, every two weeks, took a quick nap in my office on Friday night, and woke up to have dinner with me and whoever was still around. He read multiple drafts of each week's show and watched the scenes when he could. He'd find a corner to sit in and take note of everything costume, makeup, rehearsal, petty disagreements. He loved each surreal and complex part of shooting a show. 
One weekend, Brian woke up early and came back with an inflatable raft. He asked me to make sandwiches and drove us to the set in Burbank. He chatted up the security guard, who waved us in. We spent most of the day in and around a real pool, ate a real lunch, and lounged in the sun in our beautiful fake world. When we left, Brian handed the security guard a bottle of white wine he chilled for him in the pool. Two years ago, I gave Brian a new script of mine to read, and my husband, my cheerleader, TV lover, inveterate script reader, the man who half hoped we'd wind up in Silver Lake and not Stony Creek, Connecticut, didn't read it. In the years we were together, Brian read everything I'd ever written, within days of my finishing. After a week, I asked about the TV script. Brian said that he hadn't gotten around to it. He sounded a little puzzled. Weeks went by and he didn't mention it. I steel myself and asked him about it again, and he said, with no chagrin and not much interest, that the format was too difficult to follow. He left it lying on the bedroom floor, until I took it back to my office. Sunday, January 26, 2020, Zurich. At the JFK Palm, we ate and tipped well, and then found our way to the Swiss Air Lounge, which had been moved temporarily to the very distant lounge of Emirates Airline where the female staff at the front desk combined brisk efficiency with an unmistakable nod to deference, an actual repeated head duck, in their dealings with Brian. I got a bland sideways smile. I handled the tickets and I handled the passports, and still, the longer we stood there, the more what else can I do for you Mr. Mech there was. Nothing comparable came my way. Brian did not mind. Even I didn't mind. Patriarchy and my handsome husband, Wade Aconado. The lounge was clean and there was a lot of fruit and all sorts of buffet dishes proper Middle Eastern, Italianish, Frenchish and a bustling bar. Brian snagged a big ball of falafel as we got settled. It wasn't stealing, of course, but I didn't think it was polite to reach out with your big fingers into the pile, when there were silver tongs, tiny forks, small plates, and matching small three-ply paper cocktail napkins waiting. Brian didn't care if it was rude, and the not caring wasn't a function of Alzheimer's. He had never cared. We each have things we do that the other person finds faintly shocking. At home, I go outside to get the newspaper in what I call my pajamas, a ratty t-shirt and a pair of boxer shorts from college, rather than some fetching pink pipe set. We have neighbors. People can and do see me. I don't care. Brian was always, truly, appalled. He thought it was low rent, and, although he would never use the word, slatternly. After the neurologist's appointment, he said, why confuse people? Why make them think there are two people with Alzheimer's in the house? And we did both laugh and I still dash out of the house on Sunday mornings. We are, my daughter the psychologist tells me, people with traces of mild sosupathy. I don't disagree. Brian scouted the lounge for a satisfactory pair of armchairs and dove into the New York and London Tamises. I don't know what reading the papers means to him anymore. Politics, a bit of sports news, a football player at Yale in his day, he refuses to watch college football now, upset at the lack of care for the players, but he still keeps track of which teams are doing what. Some tidbits about real estate or architecture or design used to catch his eye, from his 40 years as an architect. He never comments anymore. He used to read me several paragraphs at a clip about things that struck him, and even more, he loved for me to read articles to him while he drove. I never read aloud to him enough to suit him, but I once did almost the entire Sunday review, while we pursued an unlikely five-star BBQ place on the other side of Connecticut. When I faltered on the last op-ed piece, he said, finish strong, darling. Brian folded up a newspapers to bring on the plane, and then thought better of it. There was a whole style of planning, of near hoarding of favorite things, of anticipating his own needs, which has been his way since we met. 
He never got into his car, from April to November, without making sure he had at least one of his lesser fishing rods and some flies in the trunk. He never left a restaurant without fistfuls of mints to put in his nightstand, candy jar, and glove compartment. On this trip, he's done. I give him a wad of Swiss francs. He knows where his medications are, plus his little vial of Viagra. If he doesn't have it, he doesn't need it. If I'm not carrying it, it's not important. Dash we take every little Swiss air giveaway, for no reason, and we hang on to a carry-on bags. I have insisted that we don't bring proper suitcases, because I will not lug home a large suitcase full of clothes he will never wear and medicines he will never take while packing, Brian shook a bottle of 10 Viagra at me like a maraca and said, this is worth something. I won't dump his clothes at the Swiss version of Goodwill and leave his meds for the cleaning staff. Basically, I just won't deal with it, with after. After Brian has died and I have to leave him, my goal is to get myself on a plane with my friend who has offered to accompany me home. Then my daughter Sarah will meet me at the airport, and Sarah and I will be met by my daughter Caitlin, and the two of them will say goodnight to me, and my fantasy is that I will fall into my bed and not get up for two weeks. This is absolutely not what happens. We have brought our crappiest canyon bags, black briefcases that double as overnight bags from Brian's business travel days. Brian and I both hate the thought of throwing away a nice suitcase. Sociopaths, maybe, and given to splurging, yes, but not people who can throw out a belly-used unscratched $250 suitcase. The Book Brothers. Then we moved to a small Connecticut village in 2014. Brian was invited to join a men's book club. He was dubious because they seemed to prefer non-fiction and he did not, but he was pleased to be asked, and he went regularly. He suggested a novel whenever it was his turn to suggest. They asked him why he wanted to be in their book club and he said, I love a good read, and I love intimacy. He was pleased that they looked shocked, and he felt that he denounced himself properly. Once in a while, he has coffee on a weekend with one of the guys. He says the books are usually too simple, I don't know. It's about some horse who overcomes obstacles, or sentimental, Olympic team of rowers. They win, for him, but he enjoyed the group and the chatting before and after until two years ago, when almost everything about the book club began to irritate him. I hear him grumbling when the emails come in. There are too many schedule changes, he doesn't know which house the meeting's at, and they expect him to know by now which man lives where. So they don't always attach the address of the meeting. He goes to a meeting on the wrong night, but he doesn't mind, because a few months earlier, a book brother showed up at a house a week early. Brian tells me that one of the men he really likes, with whom he'd had lunch a couple of years ago, is moving out of town. I encourage Brian to call him for a last lunch, but he says that it's too late, that the man has already moved away. One day, I look at Brian's phone, I often find myself looking at Brian's phone this last two years, but I pretend I don't, and I see an email from the man who I thought moved away, putting in his pitch for the book he'd like the group to read. He has moved about ten minutes farther away, and is still very much in the book club. This fall, Brian has gotten the book for his book club, meaning, I picked it up from our library, across the street, and talks to me about it with enthusiasm. But I can see that not only does the bookmark not advance, it goes backward, every couple of days, to the first ten pages. He doesn't go to the meeting, and the book sits on his nightstand for months, even as we are packing for Zurich, because even when he sees it, it doesn't matter, or he has forgotten about it, and because I cannot bear to touch or even mention it. Monday, January the 27th, 2020, Zurich. We land in Zurich and the hotel's car service takes us to the pretty hotel in the Cobblestone Old Town section. The city's warmer than we expect, and it's drizzling. The widow is a bunch of old buildings pulled together into a posh hotel through oddly placed lifts and corridors, the kind of hotel we might choose for a holiday, although it has never occurred to either of us, ever, to go to Zurich.
Every restaurant we pass is full with couples, most of whom are apparently pairs of straight white men in businessish clothes. Sometimes, they are foursomes. Occasionally, there is a businessman in his late 60s and a hot young thing in a silk mini dress and strappy sandals, my god, I think, the cobblestones. Between Brian's trouble with proprioception this past year gashed his hand, slipped off the front porch, tumbled backward off a picnic bench and my new Zurich terror that he will slip and fall on the wet cobblestones of old town, and we will not be able to get ourselves to Dignitas. The cobblestones and conversations about cobblestones loom very large on this trip. I feel shifty and out of place at the hotel's front desk. Brian wanders around, in and out of the lobby, and when I see him walk through a pair of swinging doors at the end of the hall while I am searching for our passports, my stomach hurts, as it does every time he leaves my sight. When he comes back a few minutes later, I've pulled myself together. Every time the concierge asks me a question, I fumble like a suspect. Why are we here? Would we like a map of all the stores on Barnstrass, Gucci, Fendi, Hublet, Cartier? May they show me the bar and the library? I want to say to Brian that it reminds me a little of a hotel we loved in Amsterdam, but I am afraid that he won't remember the trip, the hotel. I am afraid that he won't, but he will pretend that he does and I won't know if he does or he doesn't, which is awful, or I will know he doesn't, which is also awful, and I don't say anything, which is usually the choice I make now. We are both exhausted by the time we get to our room. The room is hotel pleasant and pretty, with floor-to-ceiling French windows, looking down on a bakery, a jewelry store. Brian encourages me to go in and the stuff is lovely, and he picks out a ring he thinks I like and I do like it, and we're both pleased. He has gotten me some really ugly jewelry in the last three years, things that are so far from my taste, that, if he were a different man, I'd think he was keeping a 70s boho brocas mistress in Westville, and gave me by mistake the enameled copper earrings and bangle he bought for her. The Zurich rings are beautiful, beaten gold and custom made with small blue opals, like bits of night, and $10,000 apiece. Brian and I smile politely and walk out. He says, I wanted you to have something and I know he means to remember him by, and this is the last time we cry together, before Thursday. It's raining, but couples are strolling into bars and the big old-fashioned tea shop on the corner. We might have come for a holiday. I guess. Back in our room, we stand in front of the big window for a few minutes, and I taste it again, the metallic tang of almost normal. If it was truly normal, we'd unpack and shower. That is, Brian would unpack. I would dick around and then shower and hope that he might unpack for me, which rarely happens. Then we get into bed and nap or make love, there's always a lot of Viagra to use up. The man stocked up on Viagra the way my mother hoarded canned goods just in case, or we'd bundle ourselves out the door to the Moroccan restaurant in Paris, where the chef would come rushing to greet us when he heard Brian's voice. On our first visit and Brian's big order, he came out and looked at our table in surprise. Only the two of you. He laughed and then he brought Brian two more small tagines, because Brian hadn't yet tried the lamb or the pigeon. The punkish head shop slash barber shop in London where we'd always go right after landing, suitcase in hand, where Brian got the best haircut of his life in a shop so small, we were both high by the time we left it. This time, we stare out the window and we both sigh. We undress and crawl into bed. Brian sleeps for a couple of hours. I worry, sometimes, that a better wife, certainly a different wife, would have said no, would have insisted on keeping her husband in this world until his body gave out. It seems to me that I'm doing the right thing in supporting Brian in his decision, but it would feel better and easier if he could make all the arrangements himself and I could just be a dutiful duckling, following in his wake. Of course, if he could make all the arrangements himself, he wouldn't have Alzheimer's, and if he had wanted to make all the arrangements on his own, he wouldn't have been Brian. I walk this loop in my mind as I wake up and unpack. 
I think of Susie Chang, my eminently sensible tarot card reader, and if you think that it's absurd to find comfort in tarot, I've got no argument for you, he uses the crow deck to take a look at what might happen, or what I might wish to mitigate. My daughters appear, repeatedly, as two crows, or two lions, or two shields in front of me, and, again, if you think that this is the height of idiocy, I don't disagree. Turning over the chariot card, in a last reading before Brian and I travel, Susie and I see a small crab in the corner. This is your card, Susie Chang says. You have to drive this chariot, you have to drive it with a hard shell, because otherwise it will crush you beneath the wheel. She says, you cannot let go until it is over. I make an I know I know noise. She taps the card and says, if you let go of the reins, it will crush you, and I burst into tears. Most of the time, I do feel like the little crab, armored and fragile. Dash I have brought nothing to Zurich, but washed out black and grey clothes and my everyday underwear. I will not be as my mother would have said about other things making an effort. I try to figure out which fun things we'll do in Zurich. At home, we'd had a pretty good time making a list of a dozen things, including the best restaurants of Zurich. In the end we do get to the Chagall windows, a couple of walks down Barnathstrasse, Lake Zurich, there is Tina Turner's house, the guide says, and we wave. It seems to me that she has had a lovely, loving marriage to this Swiss guy, and I'm glad for her, and a not bad Italian place around the corner. The whole trip, I can wear only yoga pants and one moth-eaten cardigan. Now that we're here, struggling to pull ourselves together to go down for dinner, I think that if we can show up for breakfast, smile at the concierge, take the tour of Lake Zurich that we've already booked, and visit those famous Chagall stained glass windows. Since one of Brian's hobbies is making stained glass, we will have done a great job and fill the time from Monday to Thursday morning. Our first night, we do manage to go down to the Widder's Michelin starred restaurant, but it's confusing to both of us. There's no water and no bread. The waiter seems more like a guy trying to finish his dissertation, waiting for us to leave his cowl. You know tarpers. The waiter says, and I say that we do indeed know tarpers. So, this is our version of tarpers he says, and hands us the menu, which lists three prawns for $50, a small venison sausage for 40 On the next table, we see one meatball and one sliced mushroom in a spoonful of beef broth. Brian and I stare at the meatball and the menu and the waiter stands perfectly still, and we order chicken sandwiches from the bar. I'm too mad to order a $22 Aperol spritz. The fries are excellent. The provisional green light. We have a day to full before our first interview with Dr. G, the Swiss doctor from Dignitas who will conduct two interviews with Brian, one Monday and one Wednesday, before our appointment at the Dignitas apartment on Thursday. We'd been informed, in our last phone call with our Dignitas contact person, Heidi, who has now revealed her actual name to us, S, that we're on our way to the provisional green light, and then we got the more official email. Stating that we had now received the provisional green light, and a Swiss doctor would write the prescription for the sodium pentobarbital that Brian would drink for his accompanied suicide in the Dignitas apartment. So, if Brian does as well as expected in the interviews, with Dr. G. Checking on Brian's discernment and determination, we'll get the full green light on Wednesday, and go to the Dignitas apartment on Thursday. As my sister said, it's like you do everything you possibly can to get your kid into Harvard, and when you do, they kill him. Ellen was horrified it came out of her mouth, and I was horrified to hear it, but she wasn't wrong. I never pushed back with Dignitas in any way. I hadn't complained when our phone interviews at home in the fall were regularly delayed, and we were notified a half hour later, by email, they're Swiss I said. How can they be late? How can they be late, again? 
Even though Brian and I were sitting in the kitchen, unbearably tense, bagels put aside so as not to make any untoward noises, waiting for the phone to ring, waiting to put Brian on speakerphone, so that if they asked something important to which he could not find the answer, I could write it down in the notebook in front of us, and he could then answer. This only happened once, when S asked him why he wanted to end his life, and he paused, not because he didn't know the answer, but because he'd forgotten a word for Alzheimer's. Sometimes he said Anheuser, as in Anheuser-Busch, maker of adequate beer, and sometimes he said arthritis. By the time we leave home for Zurich, he's forgetting the names of our grandchildren, and mixing up the dates of all kinds of things, he can't find his way through the grocery store, but he always remembers the name of his disease. On the phone call with S. I wrote Alzheimer's, as neatly as I could with a shaking hand, in giant letters. Brian nodded to me, and cleared his throat, as if it's just that he was moved by the gravity of the question, and then he answers thoughtfully. I don't want to end my life, he said, but I'd rather end it while I am still myself, rather than become less and less of a person. This is the call we have been working towards since August, five months, when it became clear that Dignitas was Brian's best choice, and probably, really, his only one. We might have gotten there sooner had it not been for the neurologist who wrote in the lab report for Brian's MRI that she was ordering it because of a major depressive episode. This was easy to write and not true, and if she had been a little more diligent or accurate, we might have been accepted by Dignitas in September, and, in fact, we would not have been ready. By December, when S. told us that we could go forward with the process, that we could come to Zurich in January, the real thing was upon us, the world without Brian in it, the world going on without him, me alone and him in the earth or in the stars, but not next to me. After we thanked S. One more time, we hung up, weeping in each other's arms, and, without speaking, went right up to bed for a nap at 11am. Monday, January 27, 2020, Zurich. According to Dignitas data, 70% of the people who get the provisional green light never contact Dignitas again, the reassurance, the insurance, is all they need. That was not us. In early December, we were still hoping for the green light. We'd received an email that the Dignitas office would be closed from December 21 to January 6. It also said that we'd sent them the wrong form for Brian's birth certificate, and our appointments in Zurich could not, would not, be scheduled until those papers were received. S. Attached a list of recommended hotels, all of them sounding pleasant enough, several of them very chalet-like, with lots of gingerbread and overlooking Lake Zurich. But Brian didn't want to take healthy hikes around the lake. He wanted to be in the center of the city, in either the oldest or the most modern part, as he always does. He told me to get some other hotel suggestions. He said, just Google some places and show me, and we began our virtual tour of Zurich, a cold German-Swiss city famous for chocolate, some good fishing in the spring, holding on to the bank deposits that persecuted Jews made during World War II, and not giving back a franc or a painting until 2000. And one good restaurant overlooking the famous Chagall windows. Short version. When we do get to Zurich, the windows are nice. The Frommenster Church offered the commission to Chagall in the 70s, when he was 80 years old. He finished the five windows in three years. Jacob wrestling with the angel. The end of day's angel with trumpet. Giant crucifixion scene. I love Chagall and these bored me to fucking tears. Brian looked and looked, checking out the paint colors, the lines, and the soldering, and then we both turned away in the shadowy sacristy. We didn't care, and we weren't moved. We had a better time in the tea shop afterward, eating exceptional, perfect cakes of red velvet topped with wobbling red gelatin, and, on top of that, thin chocolate domes like bonnets. That, we could get behind. Fifteen minutes for the windows, one hour for the pastries. July 2019 The Blue Notebooks
I'm hoping the neurologist we've made the appointment with will have an explanation for the past few years of things that Brian's done that have puzzled me or hurt me and constantly worried me. After complaining about his phone and the calendar on the phone, Brian has started carrying a six-page paper calendar all over the house, from room to room, as my grandmother used to carry her ancient plastic handbag. When I say, we don't need a calendar, he bristles. When I remind him that we have a large whiteboard calendar in the kitchen for coordinating doctor's appointments, social engagements, and that, at his request, I've filled in a lot of squares with his appointments and mine, he says, I never look at that thing. When I say, hoping for a fun evening like we used to have, for two working adults, we took in a lot of movies and a lot of popcorn, let's go to the movies tonight or tomorrow, he gets up, searches for his paper calendar, and comes back to me, studying it hard. Although there's always a 7 o'clock movie at the 12 plex 5 minutes away, and we have neither children at home nor a dog. He brandishes the calendar every time we talk about any coming event, including getting takeout. I see him writing things down, in his new jagged handwriting. Several years ago, we started keeping a notebook to help our communication. I liked the idea more than Brian did, but eventually he took to it, using it to let me know that he'd gone for a walk, or we needed toilet paper, or he was out running errands. The notebook also made it easier for him not to use his phone, and he liked that a lot. The notebooks had begun, when we first married, with my leaving a scrap of paper on the kitchen counter, anchored by a salt sugar. It might say, your mother called or dinner with so-and-so Saturday night. Brian found this unsatisfactory probably slipshod, certainly unserious and, so he asked for a notebook. A few years ago, each notebook began to have very specific things wrong with it. Too big, too small, the days not dated, the hours not noted. I made every single change, not always nicely, and eventually we settled on a series of navy blue spiral notebooks, and I learned to put the day and the date at the top of every page, in large letters. I learned to list things separately and clearly, and I learned that being clever or cute, drawings, stickers, questions, was not only a waste of time, but annoying to him. We went through dozens of those navy blue notebooks, and by the time we went to Zurich, it was one of the few methods of communication that did not fail us regularly. I have them still. Monday, January 27, 2020, Zurich. My tone in correspondence with Dignitas was always restrained pleading, plus a little humor, to show that we would not be difficult, and a threat of please note my very Swiss attention to detail. I have become as English as possible, you cannot have Jewish jeshreying, and Italian agitasi with the Swiss German, is what I believe. Every email I send them has either the words quite, or a bit or perhaps and usually all three. I want to demonstrate patience, clarity, and some sort of appealing and demure stoicism. We are a bit concerned that since our contact person is not in the office this week, we will receive no information about planning until after January 6. That does feel to us like a long time before we can even begin to plan. When you write that our contact person will be in touch as soon as possible what is that time frame, please? Thank you for all of your help. Brian Amek and Amy Bloom von. Amy Bloom Jusendet. Dienstag, 17. December 2019-1544 Dignitas Betriff. Birth certificate received Dear Mrs. Bloom, Dear Mr. Amek, your contact person will get back to you as soon as possible, latest after our holidays on 06 January 2020. Your sincerely, Team Dignitas Dignitas Menschenwedig Leben Menschenwedig Sturban. Monday evening, January 27, 2020, Zurich. I hope to be patient, stoic, and demure with Dr. G when he comes to our hotel. He's phoned me twice, and moved our interview twice, and we are now, oddly, settled on Monday at 10 p.m. The late hour makes it seem shadier and more important. I worry that Dr. G 
will stop at the front desk and they will see that he's here to interview Brian, to give him the medical green light for his appointment on Thursday, and someone, some well-meaning, life-affirming or night manager, will stop us. I wonder if I should loiter in the lobby to keep this from happening. Brian says I should do nothing of the kind. I try to figure out what kind of answers Brian will need to give Dr. G and how I should behave. I put on my black shirt and my black cardigan and look in the mirror. The Swiss seem quite conservative, so this might be the right note to strike. I want to demonstrate support, of the right kind, whatever that may be. Fortunately, I didn't marry for money, and no matter how hard the Swiss authorities dig, it will be clear that I do not have a financial interest or benefit for marrying Brian, or for supporting his ending his life. Do they look for signs of true brokenheartedness, and not just mere resignation? This evidence of financial interest or benefit is, as it turns out, the loophole on which all of Dignitas' services depend. Swiss law says, explicitly, that it is illegal to assist or encourage a suicide if you have a clear financial interest. The law says selfish interests, which seem to me to cover more than cash in the event of the person's death. However, if you do not, you can assist someone in ending their life, and that's how Dignitas has done it for 3,000 people, so far. September 2005, Durham, Connecticut How We Met. Brian and I fell in love the way some middle-aged people in unhappy partnerships and in small towns do. Liberal Democrats in a Republican town, ethnic types in a town full of Northern Europeans, opinionated loudmouths. And people who were willing to man the Durham Democrats' hot dog stand, hot dogs and cider, every September at the fair. I overlooked his bad haircut and aviated glasses. I'm sure he had to overlook my lack of interest in sports and my impatience, Brian could talk about a plastic gazebo or additional parking at the library for hours. We had been walking together, since our partners were not walkers, and talking together in public, at our local Democrats' breakfast club, and then, suddenly, talking in private. He said, I was a three-sport captain in high school, and I laughed. He said, it would have been four sports, but you can't do lacrosse and baseball. Is that right, I said, and he took my hand. He said, what's your family like? I said, Jews from New York. You? He said, well, we're a football family. We have three Heisman trophies in my family. I said, what's a Heisman? And he kissed me. I kissed him back and, sensibly, we avoided each other for the next year. After a year, and some Martinis in New Haven at the end of the day, he asked me to take a walk with him. He said, I'm not stupid. I know how this will end. You'll tell me we should not do this to the people we love, or I'll tell you, and we will go back to our lives, where we should be. And I will never get over this. Or, we blow up our lives and be together. I just want to say this, he said, before we walk back to our cars. I know who you could be with. Someone rich, someone fancy, some guy your sister finds for you. But I know who you should be with. You should be with a guy who doesn't mind that you're smarter than he is, who doesn't mind that most of the time, you'll be the main event. You need to be with a guy who supports how hard you work, and he'll bring you a cup of coffee late at night. I don't know, if I can be that guy, he said, tears in his eyes, but I'd like a shot. We married. Monday evening continued, January the 27th, 2020, Zurich. As I understand it, Dr. G is both a guide through the process and a possible speed bump. Brian's clear on everything except the day and date, and I make the decision that the day and the date cannot be important, because drilling him on it frightens us and wears us out. The friend of a friend who'd brought her father with brain cancer to Dignitas told me that it was very important that Brian open the hotel room door, showing that he's in charge of the process. I tell Brian this, and he nods, but I can tell he's not going to jump up at the first knock. Brian is not someone who rushes, period, to host at any gathering we've ever had. 
He loves being the guest and he makes up for it by doing a ton of dishes after. I don't know how to make sure he answers the door or even if it's important. I just keep saying. The doctor's gonna knock on the hotel room door. I'm also worried about etiquette. Will the doctor expect a cup of tea? Does he look like the Grim Reaper? No and no. The doctor does knock on the door and I almost scream. Brian strolls over to the door and is his most amiable and pleasant, Brian self. We used to say that Brian could talk to anyone. He could make small talk with a stump and, in the end, that stump would be hugging Brian goodbye, thanking him for a great evening and inviting us all to the next stump get-together. Dr. G is a small man with large lovely mournful eyes. We all shake hands and Brian and Dr. G sit across from each other. I ask Dr. G if I can stay for the conversation and he looks surprised. He says, gently, that of course I should stay, as this all concerns me as well. I begin crying and both men look at me kindly. I pour myself a glass of water. Dr. G. Moish, he says. That's my father's name, and I feel lightly blessed somehow, and I know that I have lost my mind, asks about a flight. He mentions, complaining lightly, just en passant, in what I can only describe as the Jewish fashion of complaining while assuring us, at the beginning and end of each sentence, that he is certainly not complaining, that he had to come so late at night, because he was at a concert in the city, and it was most convenient, coming after the concert, because he lives by the lake, and doesn't come into town every day but, since we chose to stay in the old town, he had to make a special trip just to see us, not that he's complaining. I beg him to take a glass of water and he does, probably so I'll stop crying. He opens a folder, and says to Brian, after I read your application, I knew I would see you, but I didn't think it would be this soon. Brian says, it's not a big window. I mean, no one knows how long they have, how much time they have, to make this choice. Dr. G looks like he might argue, but instead he says, you're absolutely right. He says that he began helping Dignitas, he is an ophthalmologist, after his father's death from Alzheimer's, which was long and painful, in every way. He says that Dignitas uses eight doctors and they are all pretty busy. I worry that he will mention again how much extra time it takes to schlep from the lake into the city, but he doesn't. He says to Brian, I will ask you several times, many times, if you are sure that this is what you wish to do, and I want you to understand that at any time, at any time between now and the final act, you are free to change your mind and not do this. I hope you will not do this, he says softly, and Brian nods. So, Dr. G says, are you sure that you wish to end your life on Thursday? Brian says that he is sure. I start crying again and, thank God, both men ignore me again. Dr. G smiles and nods. It seems to me, he says pleasantly, holding up the folder, you don't believe in anything, Mr. Emek. Brian laughs and says, I believe in a lot of things, but religion and the afterlife are not among them. Well, Dr. G says, chuckling, you'll find out before I will. Let me know. Brian smiles. Dr. G's tone changes. Let me tell you what will happen. You will arrive at our apartment building in the suburbs of Zurich, in the morning, by 10 a.m. Do not be late. You will be greeted by two people from Dignitas. They will invite you in. You can take your time, he says. There will be no rushing. He looks at me, as if he can tell that I am the rushing sort, and I want to assure him that every minute of our time in Zurich is me trying to push back the clock. There is some paperwork. There are chocolates. They will give you an anti-emetic, he says, so you will not vomit. You have up to an hour after that to make your choice about drinking the drink. If you need more time, they will administer the anti-emetic again. And again, you will have about an hour after that to drink the drink. After you drink it, it is a little bitter, he says, and I wonder how he knows. After you drink it, you will fall into a light sleep, then a deep sleep. 
Then it will be over. Mrs. Amek, you can sit with him for a long time. I'm glad he calls me Mrs. Amek. I know Brian always gets a kick out of that. Brian nods attentively. Dr. G says, at any time in this process, you may change your mind. Right now, or Thursday morning. No one will be surprised or distressed. We will all be glad for you. I don't know why this would be. Perhaps I would be glad too, but only if it meant a spell was broken, and my whole husband was returned to me and to himself, and these last years turned out to have been just a terrible test, one poisoned apple after another. To prove that my darling deserves the life he had before. Brian shakes his head. I know what I'm doing he says. This is the right thing for me. Dr. G nods. I see that he says. But I will keep asking. Brian and I sit back down, after he's gone. I say that Dr. G. Seemed nice and Brian agrees. Brian says, it's going okay, and I agree. We sleep side by side, fingertips touching. Babu, king of castles. With every one of our little girls, our granddaughters, Brian never thought, for one minute, that he should have had children. I'm the baby, he said cheerfully, Brian became a better and better grandfather, the best Babu. I feel like I robbed a bank, he often said. Never had kids and went straight to grandchildren. How lucky am I? With every little girl, there was a phase, between two and four, when he was the Lego god, the lord of the towers and king of castles, and we have pictures of each of them standing on Brian's desk or coffee table. Taller than he is, pointing proudly to the stack of blocks towering above them. Brian praised anything that seemed to show architectural or engineering skills. She copied the picture perfectly. Look how stable that is she built a decent foundation. See how she put all the blue ones on one corner of the building envelope. I did a building like that. When each girl got a little older and expressed interest in the more elaborate Legos, Brian would be at the kitchen table, attaching hard pink bouquets to tiny green stems, building and decorating a pastel brick wall with elaborate mosaics, hitching cell phone-sized lilac RVs to tiny cars. While the little girl waited happily, occasionally handing him a piece of plastic or sharing some chocolate. A visiting cousin found the bowl of candy on Brian's nightstand and said, Oh, Uncle Brian is the luckiest man in the world. The granddaughters shrugged, happy to be in the know, happy to be the special people who could stick their hands right into Babu's candy jar in the pantry, and get nothing but a knowing wink from Babu, who could be counted on to turn his broad back to hide them from their parents. Tuesday, January 28, 2020, Zurich. We walk around, exploring the fancy shops on Barnefstrasse, and we walk down to Lake Zurich again. We walk back. We can't bring ourselves to go into the shops or browse the way we normally would. We once spent a joyful half-hour in an insanely expensive men's clothing store in Chicago, just so Brian could try on dark blue fedoras and Miss Sony mufflers and cashmere pullovers. There's a toy store near the hotel and we concentrate on that. I want to bring all the granddaughters something from Zurich. We gather twins, Eden and Ivy, a snow globe of two bunnies, even though I don't like getting them gifts to share, there is only one snow globe. And it suddenly seems that there will not be a single decent gift in all of Zurich for me to bring back. Our cover story is. Nana and Babu went on a vacation to Europe. While there, Babu died of a disease in his brain. I've talked this over a dozen times, with my therapist, Wayne. When the pace of my worrying and complaining about Brian became non-stop, a friend gave me a referral to Wayne, a psychiatrist, a man I'd met 40 years earlier, when I was a graduate student, and he was striding Yale's halls like a psychoanalytic god. I called him, introduced myself, said we'd met before, he clearly didn't remember me, and then I burst into tears. I said, I hope you can help me. I want to kill my husband, and I kept on crying. He said, you want to kill him because you love him, and I said, you are so right. 
Wayne, as far as I am concerned, saved me before and after this trip to Zurich, and in the end, he saved Brian too. Wayne used to treat children as well as adults. I've talked over what to say about Babu and his death, with Wayne and with my children, the parents of our four gorgeous little girls, Brian's adoring pack. Wayne says, again and again, simplest is best, and none of this is untrue. I've told my children that if they wish to go another way with his story, if there is another approach they wish to take, I will respect that. None of us conclude that getting into the right to die and how we came to that, and that I sat with their beloved Babu, while he passed from life to death, and let him and why I let him with an 11-year-old, two 6-year-olds, and a 2-year-old will be helpful. They will all miss him terribly, and I'm pretty sure, that none of them have perceived any malfunction in him. Yet I know that, if we were not going to Dignitas now, soon they would be sad, and relieved for his life, to come to its end, and this way they are just heartbroken. It matters to Brian, and to me, that they will remember him as the loving, fun, goofy, candy-sharing, soft-touch Babu. I figure that when each of them gets to be old enough, if they want to, they will read this book and his lovely little notes written to each of them, all of which begin. I wish I could stay longer. And when they are teenagers, they may be angry that we lie to them, and that will be okay. This is the best we can do. Wednesday, January the 29th, 2020, Zurich. We shop, we go to dinner, we meet my oldest friend, who has flown in, just to fly home with me, when I have to travel without Brian. Other people, including all of my children, volunteered to come. My son said, if you don't want me there while the two of you are there, I'll just meet you in Zurich airport on Thursday and fly home with you. Some people offered quickly and then withdrew their offers a little later, when they contemplated the actual trip. My oldest friend called and said, tell me what you need, and I did tell her, on speakerphone, so Brian could also have his say. We don't need much while we're there, I tell her. Brian nods and he shouts, thanks, darling. Before we hang up. I text her later that I expect that I will not be functioning very well at Zurich Airport on the way home, and her only job is to get me on the plane and home to Newark Airport, without any major fuck-ups. She says, I can do that, and she does. We have one more day to fill. We take walks I photograph the intersections so we won't get lost, and every time I hold up my phone, Brian walks on and says, we'll be fine. We chat listlessly. I find an index card in my bag when I get home. January 29, Agony and Tedium. We sleep after every meal. When Brian wakes up, we read some poetry off my phone. Brian's man, John Ciardi, his girl Samborska, and I read my James, Hirschfield and Kenyon. I read them to myself because I cannot read them aloud, and I can't even look at the line, let the endless gods take back what they can from my favorite Hirschfield poem, because, boy, they've shown me, those envious gods, haven't they just? Brian says he wants to take a walk and puts on his jacket. I grab my sweater and my notebook, where I wrote down Dr. G's suggestion for the best routes. I'm like a pioplopusing agoraphobic here in Zurich, the idea of going beyond the tea shop on the corner terrifies me, and I actually wish to conceal this fact from Brian. I've only become an anxious person in the last few months, and my coping and deflecting mechanisms are not polished. We can't even play gin. We can't read. I would like to have some heartfelt, leaf-shaking conversations, the way I imagine some people get to, at the end of life. I imagine this despite having sat at multiple deathbeds, at which there definitely were no last-minute confessions, assertions, or expressions of deep feeling. The people dying were often in pain and exhausted or heavily medicated. My father patted my hand and thought I was my mother. My mother grabbed my arm and said, Jesus, honey, do something about the pain. As my old man used to say, frequently, regarding my expectations. The triumph of hope over experience.